All right, we're going to read the Bible together. Can we open up our Bibles to the book of Mark? We've been in the series, Mark series for a while, um, and we are in chapter 7 today. So if you just want to jump to Mark chapter 7. <clears throat> and today's a bit of a longer passage, verse 1 to 23. I'm going to read this for us. Mark chapter 7, verse 1 to 23. I'll be reading the ESV version. You guys can follow along. Mark chapter 7, verse 1 to 23. Verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of their elders. And when they come from the, the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other tra traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean, verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of a man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Amen. Thanks, Peter, for reading that long passage. Um, let me pray for us. Uh, let me pray for myself and then we'll uh, jump into today's word. Uh, let me pray. <clears throat> God, we ask that your spirit would be at work as your word is unpacked, as it is explained. Uh, we need you uh, because uh, we desire a heart internal transformation uh, we long for fruit that is of the spirit um, and so it is something that you need to accomplish and so god uh, work powerfully within our lives within our hearts uh, that you would move and change us um, yeah that while we're on zoom uh, even though it may not be perfect uh, that we might see your powerful hand still at work and so we're here for you uh, we long to hear from you um, and to be used by you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, if I was more organized, uh, I would start off my sermon by saying, we just sang, give us clean hands. 
but I was an organizer, so I didn't get crazy to sing that song. But, you know, I, I'm sure most of us, we know this song, uh, Give Us Clean Hands. It's like a classic uh, for some of us. Um, when I was in university, we sang it. I, um, I'm pretty sure it's like decades old. Uh, but the song goes, so give us clean hands and give us pure hearts. Right? Let us not lift our souls to another. So give us clean hands and give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. Right? Our, today's sermon, by the way, is called Clean Hands, Pure Hearts, uh, if you take notes. Uh, but that song, Give Us Clean Hands, Give Us Pure Hearts, is based off a psalm. Right? You may know that, Psalm 24. And in Psalm 24, David asks this question. It's a really important question. It's the question that um, you know, humanity is really trying to figure out. And the question is, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Right, so the question is, who will God welcome into his presence, into his holy place? Right? Who is allowed into you know, God's uh, presence? And the answer that David gives in verse 4 is, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Right? That's the person that God welcomes into his holy place. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And so today, in uh, our passage today, we're going to look at those two things. We're going to look at the clean hands and we're going to look at the pure heart because Jesus is going to emphasize how this is what we need you know, to honor and please God. We need clean hands. This is what we do. And we need pure hearts. This is who we are. And as we go along, we're going to find out actually that one of these is far more crucial than the other, right? Even though both are important, clean hands, pure heart, one is more important, right? And so number one, let's look, talk about clean hands. Right? That's the first point, clean hands, what we do. And today's passage, the Pharisees confront Jesus because of his disciples. Uh, they're doing something that in their eyes is disgusting. It's defiled, it's unclean. All right, so let's read verse one. When the Pharisees gathered to Jesus uh, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples of Jesus ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. And so looking at the disciples, and the disciples are eating with hands that aren't washed. Now, uh, you know, whenever Reuben or Zoe eat, we, we make sure that they clean their hands as well. But this is a different thing that they're doing. Uh, when they say defiled, they're not worried about it being unhygienic. Right? They're not worried about you know, COVID like, like we are. Um, they're worried about spiritual uncleanliness. So they wash their hands, not to get rid of the germs, but they believe religiously, like spiritually, it would cleanse them from, you know, kind of sin. Uh, verse three, it explains, for the Pharisees and all the Jews, so this is something not just the Pharisees are doing, all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. We're going to hear that phrase again. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, right? So that's all a kind of side note to say, you know, the Pharisees, they have these rules called the tradition of the elders, and they have all these traditions, right? We'll come back to that. And in verse five, we find the question, the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Right. The question is, why aren't your disciples following the rules? Why aren't your disciples doing what you know, all the other Jews are doing all around? We wash our hands. 
And Jesus, you call yourself a rabbi, a, a you know, holy person, and yet you're letting your disciples not do these things that make them unholy. Right? They're defiled. What's going on here? So Jesus gives his answer in verse 6 to 8. Verse 6, Jesus says to them, Well did as Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 20, 29 verse 13. He says, This people honor me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. In vain do they worship me, and this is important, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. By teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Now, what Jesus isn't rebuking, he's not saying that rules are bad. Jesus isn't against a list of things we should and shouldn't do. When you look at the Bible, you know, much of it is guidance on what we should and shouldn't do, right? God cares about what we do and what we don't do, right? Um, you know, we are meant to, as Christians, live in light of God's word, God's command, and obey him. That pleases him. And when we uh, disobey, when we sin, it displeases him, right? So Jesus isn't saying rules are bad, let's get rid of all rules. The problem is this, right? Again, they were teaching as doctrines the commands of men. And what that means is they were taking man-made rules and saying, this is law. This is what God wants you to do. When it's never found in the scriptures, they just kind of made their own rules and they were burdening people with their rules. And that's what Jesus, that's what the passage is calling tradition of the elders, right? These man-made rules that, you know, maybe they inherited from, you know, their previous leaders who they inherited from their previous leaders. This is just the way that we do it. But over time, it became confusing and convoluted. And a lot of times when we, you know, as Christian leaders, even we set, you know, guidelines, you know, we set, you know, rules for the church. All of this is out of good intentions. When the Pharisees made these rules, they were out of good intention. But over time, these guidelines kind of got uh, really confusing and became a burden for people. Now, let me give you some examples of some of the extra rules that they were forcing people to follow. Right? This is in relation to the Sabbath. So during the Sabbath, right, the religious leaders wouldn't let Jews look in the mirror. Right? So if it's the Sabbath day, you can't look in the mirror. And that's not because of vanity. The reason why was because if you saw a gray hair, you might be tempted to pluck out your gray or white hair. And that plucking out was considered work and you can't work on the Sabbath, right? And so you got this kind of rule, you can't work on the Sabbath, right? That, that's you know, from the Old Testament. And they're saying, well, let's help people not you know, sin. Let's help people. And they're saying, well, let's, let's say that technically plucking your hair is, is, is working. Right? And so they, they broaden you know, God's word a bit more. And they say, well, if plucking your hair is sin, well, let's make sure no one is tempted so they can't look in the mirror. But do you see how they kind of, it's out of good intention, but over time, it's just kind of become this weird rule uh, that people have to follow. Another example is people couldn't wear false teeth. Because if your false teeth fall out, you might be tempted to pick it up. And that's work. Now, I don't know why that's work, but, you know, that's work. You couldn't carry a handkerchief, right? I don't know why. That's one of their rules. But you were allowed to wear a handkerchief. And so if you wanted to bring your handkerchief down, let's say from upstairs, uh, you can't carry it, but you can go up and you can tie it around your neck because you're wearing it, and then you can bring it down and then untie it and then blow your nose with it. 
Right? So they had these kind of kind of weird rules and weird workarounds. You weren't allowed to spit. Uh, you, you were allowed to spit on the Sabbath, uh, but you had to be careful where you spat because if you accidentally spat on dirt and then you scuffed the dirt and the spit with your foot, well, then you're cultivating the soil. And so then you're actually doing work, right? And so you have to be careful of that. But do you kind of understand how well, when we hear this, we're like, oh, that's, that's ridiculous. Like, how can you have these man-made rules that are so convoluted and impose them on people? But the reality is, you know, we kind of see that in our lives today. I'll go to some examples later. But why this matters is because what we do matters. Right? What we do matters to God. But in order for us to know what we should do, we must take God's word as it is. Right? And not add on to it like the religious leaders were. And not take away from it like the religious leaders were. But it's really important that we go to God's word and keep it the way that it is. Right, clean hands, right, that's what we're talking about, is about obeying God's commands, right, not man-made commands. Right, that's the point that I want to make. And so first, number one, it's important we don't add to God's commands. Now, tradition is a good thing. I don't want to say that all tradition is bad. Much of what we do is tradition. We've inherited from you know, centuries of the way that Christians have gathered and the way that they've talked and the way that they've sung, the things that they've done. We have creeds, our statements of belief that have been inherited from you know, centuries ago. Now, some of the things that we do when we do, let's say, Lord's Supper, liturgy, right? It's kind of traditional, but it's good, right? It kind of brings that kind of holy aspect and the reverence to Lord's Supper. The way that we run our services or we do events every year, in a sense, that's a kind of tradition. Again, tradition isn't bad. Pharisees, when they set these traditions, it was out of good intention. But over time, their guidelines and their traditions that were meant to guard God's command were treated as if they were God's command. And that's when it's a problem. It's okay to guard God's command. But when those guidelines that you set are treated as if they are God's commands itself, then you've added on to God's word. Right? You don't want to confuse what is biblical and what is traditional. What is biblical, we always keep and it should never change. But what is traditional, depending on the season, might change. Right? So service order. We would like the way we're doing service order. Over time, we might want to change it. And that's okay. Right? But the problem is, again, when the traditional is treated as if it's biblical. Now, when we hear the examples I gave of the, the Jews and can't look in the mirror, we, we kind of laugh. But again, we, we face this all the time because we like the way that we've done things. And sometimes we're so used to the way we've done things that when people try to change it, like there's a big uproar. Right? One example is, you know, it's not that long ago that ch churches were split and they fought over whether guitars and drums will be allowed in the service. It was like a big deal back when, you know, this kind of music was starting to enter the church where people were not singing hymns. You know, people were like, that's the, you know, that's Satan's instruments and stuff, you know, don't bring that loud clanging into the church. Um, but God's word doesn't say anything really about that. And, you know, you, I know. it doesn't say you can't have guitars or drums. It doesn't say that sinning. It doesn't say that if you have organs in your church, you're holier. But people were treating that tradition as if it did make your church or your faith or that person 
more holy in the eyes of God. And, you know, the reality is, you know, we laugh at that because we're, you know, we're, we're young, right? All of us, all of us, you know, we're young. Um, one day we're, we're all going to be old. Okay, we're going to be those old people. The pastors joke, like one day we're going to be old pastors and they're going to try to bring DJs into the praise team to, you know, to do DJing on, on Sundays. And we're going to be like, ah, oh, you know, get that devil instrument out of the church. We're going to face this too. Right. We're, we're all constantly battling you know, tradition and ensuring it doesn't, you know, isn't treated as law. And I saw it in the Korean church when attending dawn service uh, became a badge of honor and righteousness as if attendance alone made you holy. And, and don't get me wrong, I think dawn service is awesome. And I think people who are committed to wake up early because they don't have time in the day because they're so busy at work to wake up early before the sun has risen to pray, I think that's incredible, right? So I, I, I want to make that clear. But when attendance becomes by itself uh, an act of holiness or a lack of attendance um, to morning prayers means you've disobeyed God or you're less holy, then, then we've treated tradition as if it's like a form of God's command and that you have to do it. But when reality is, you don't have to go to dawn prayer. A, a lot of times it's good, but it's tradition, right? It's not biblical. And so for us as well, we need to make sure we don't add to God's commands. We don't add tradition and impose it on other people on what we should and shouldn't do, right? And it's not always so easy to discern that. But the second thing then is that we don't take from God's commands. We make sure we don't add to God's commands, something that's not there, but we need to also make sure we don't take away from what is in God's command. And that's something also that the Pharisees did. Jesus says in verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men, verse 9, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Now, in verse 10 to 12, I won't read it, but he gives an example of where the Pharisees, the religious leaders, had made a loophole, where they kind of allowed their tradition to create a loophole so people didn't have to obey the fifth commandment. Now, the fifth commandment is to honor your father and mother. And back then, people were, when their parents aged, kind of maybe for some of us, they were meant to take care of their aging parents. But the Pharisees had made a loophole where if someone said, this is Corbin, right? This is given to God. Well, you didn't have to give that money to your parents, right? This money that should be given and taking care of your parents, you don't have to give it to them because it's given to God. And so they could give it to God and really just use it for themselves. And their tradition of Corbin actually helped people not obey God's word. And that really angered Jesus because they're creating ways where they're taking away God's command. And, you know, we look at our lives, you know, we are tempted to take away from God's command as well, to subtract and say that's not something we need to do or find loopholes where we can avoid obeying God or make excuses for wrong behavior. You know, one example is, you know, what is sexual immorality? And we kind of play around with the line and we try to, you know, define the, the line of sexual immorality in such a way so that we can have the most freedom and get as close to the line as we can. Um, but that's really trying to take away from the heart and, and the spirit of the law. And so we need to make sure we don't take away 
from what God tells us to do, to not find loopholes so we can avoid or excuse ourselves. You know, the Bible constantly reminds us, reminds us, don't add or remove from God's word. Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Deuteronomy 12.32, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. And then Revelation 22, verse 18 to 19, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. It is so important to God that we keep his word pure as it is and not add to his commands and not take away. Right? That is what it is to have clean hands, to look at God's word, look at God's command and do it. Not the traditions of men right? that add or take away from it. But only God gets to determine what a holy life looks like. He's revealed it to us in his word. And so we must be diligent with the word. Now, that requires, number one, a certain familiarity with the scriptures. You need to know your Bible to a certain degree and, and to want to know it more. So that, let's say, if someone like uh, me were to impose something on you or the church and say, well, this is now a command and we all need to do it, um, that you'll be able to say, wait, I don't see that in the Bible, and make sure that no one is adding or removing from God's command. But another thing that this means is that we need to obey, to have clean hands, right? The hands is the doing part, right? We need to, we need to do what God wants us to do. Um, so that's the first point. Clean hands is doing what God wants, right? Not traditions of man, but what God says. Right? That's clean hands. But what we do is secondary. And what we do, the clean hands is secondary to a much more crucial element, which is the pure heart. And so let me talk about that. That's the second point. This is my last point. Pure hearts. This is who we are. Clean hands matter. What we do matters to God. But pure hearts, who we are, matters most. Right? Our hearts, we're going to find, is really the source of all that we do. And so our heart is really the first place we need God to work in. Right? So verse 14, we read, Jesus called the people to him again. And he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. Verse 15, this is the main point. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And so the religious leaders with the man-made traditions were saying, look, your disciples are defiling themselves because their hands are dirty, they're eating food, the dirty things are going from the outside into their body, and now they are dirty. And Jesus saying, that's not how it works. You got it the opposite way around. What's outside of you doesn't defile you. It's what's inside of you that comes out. That is what defiles you. Right? And then he explains, verse 17, when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable because they don't understand again. And he said to them, then you were also without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile you? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled, thus he declared all foods clean. Right? What you eat 
doesn't make you dirty because it doesn't go to your heart. The heart's what matters. It goes to your stomach, you digest it, and then it leaves your body, right? That's what he's saying. And then he's saying, by the way, you can eat anything, right? So all the rules in the Old Testament about pork, etc. don't worry about it. We can eat because in Christ, right, those, those certain laws have been fulfilled. Then he goes on, verse 20. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. And this is really important. Verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. William Barclay, a commentator, he says, this is the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. What Jesus says flips everything around and he gets to the heart of the problem. And the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. Oh, you see that word? Number one, I have three things to say. Number one, the heart of the problem is the heart. It's the problem of the heart. The Pharisees, they got it wrong. They thought dirty hands eat makes me unclean outside in but jesus says it's inside out it's not an external problem you have an internal problem and the heart of the problem of the fallen mankind is not what we do that's a part of it but at the heart of it it's who we are it's our hearts it's the inside and from the inside we end up doing all these bad things i don't know if you ever caught yourself you know, doing something wrong or saying something wrong that catches you off guard and it surprises you. Maybe you're having an argument and you, you lose your call, your, your volume rises. Maybe you swear, you say something or um, do something that you look back and you're like, oh, you know, I don't know where that came from. Or you commit a sin and you, you're like, I can't believe I committed that sin. I crossed the line. I thought I'd never cross. Where did this come from? And Jesus gives us the answer. It came from inside it came from your heart you know often when we sin we're quick to blame things outside of us circumstances other people for the reason we sinned you know i had bad mouth and gossiped because they wronged me it's their fault i lost control because they pressed my buttons you know, i have anger and bitterness in my heart because they did xyz i sinned because the temptation around me. But Jesus is saying it's not outside, it, it's, it was in your heart. Those external things are not the reasons we sin. They merely expose the sinfulness that was already in our hearts. They gave opportunity for our corruptedness to show itself. And so they just allowed the heart to produce that sin. No, we don't sin because of what's going on outside of us. We sin because of what's going on inside and the outside exposes the inside. Verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man, come all these sins that he lists. And he, he lists 12. I think six are things that we do. Six are attitudes that we have and all of them bad. Jeremiah says it like this in the Old Testament. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? No, no one is born good. 
No one is born neutral. All of us were born with sin in our hearts. That's the starting point of what we believe. And you and I, we need to own it. You know, we need to look at our sins, our bad traits, our character flaws, our bad choices, and not excuse them, not say they're someone else's fault, but say, you know, that was me. I, I did that. That was my heart. That's the first step I think we need to take. The second thing I want to say is that hard work isn't enough. Number one is that the problem's in the heart, but number two, that means that hard work isn't enough. If the root problem is not outside of me, if it's not something I just do, if the root problem is something that I am, then hard work will never solve it. You know, the Pharisees had a defective understanding of what the problem was. They thought they could fix the problem with a list of tasks and rules. So go do this, don't do that, let's give that, and then we'll be holy. But the root of the problem is the heart. And so then, no matter how hard we try, we're not going to fix it because we need radical heart transformation, not just behavior modification. We need a heart transplant, not just a new set of rules or a new plan. We need to start with the heart first, right? The, the clean hands matters, okay? It does matter. But the pure heart is where we need to begin. We need heart transformation. You know, hard work without the heart work will only cover up the problem, right? Without the heart being changed, if we're just working on what we do, we're just learning to cover up, you know, the evil thoughts that we have or the evil things we want to do. Do you know what I mean? It's like we're just constantly like thinking about, like we want to say bad things, but we just learn to not say it. And it's only a matter of time that the right trigger will kind of make us say the things that we've always been thinking or do the same things that were always in our hearts. What we need is the heart to change. We need God. We need God to do that. Right? That's the third point. We need God to work because hard work will never be enough. Right? How can we change ourselves? I'm not a doctor. I'm pretty sure that uh, heart surgery on yourself is impossible. <laughs> I may be wrong, um, but you know, you can put a band-aid on yourself and you can maybe even stitch out your arm, but something as radical and deep as changing your heart, that requires someone else to step in. And when it comes to changing my own heart, we need God. We need God to work through Jesus Christ. That's our only hope. You know, God does that, you know, right from the beginning. You know, before we become a Christian, we need God to do that work. We call this regeneration. Our hearts are so corrupt that we would never turn to God unless God worked in our hearts first. He made our, our, ourselves sensitive to our sorry state of sin. And so we'd look at our sin and say, that's a problem. And so we would look to Jesus and say, you are my Lord and Savior. That's something God does in our heart. God prophesies about this in Ezekiel 36, 26. God says, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you, uh, give, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Right? God's saying he will, he will do that heart transformation for us. And we need that or else we will never turn to him. Right? That's how deceitful our hearts are. But not only do we need that in order to turn to God and to become Christian and saved, we need God to work in our hearts every day as a Christian. 
But as a Christian, your ongoing battle is not just a battle in the clean hands, what I do. It is, again, a battle in the heart, that God will continue to mold and purify my heart so that I would long for the things that he longs for. I would care for the things he cares for and that temptation and sin will not be the things that I want to fall into. You know, this is the battle of the Christian life where we're constantly wanting God to change our hearts. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 7. In Romans 7, 22, he says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Right? That's saying I, I want to do what God wants me to do. Verse 23. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin. He's saying, so within me, there's a battle. A part of me wants to do what God wants me to do, but a part of me wants me to sin. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who's going to save me from myself? And then he says, verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who will help you win your daily battles? A part of it is you need to try and you need to put in the effort, but at the heart of it is we need God. We need God. Only God working through his spirit by what Christ has accomplished will enable me to have the strength and the discipline to win and be victorious in my daily battles against sin. And the promise of God is that one day he will glorify us. Or one day in the future, we will see the, the full, complete uh, result of what God has already started in our lives, where there will be no impurity within us and there will be no impurity in what we do. Now, we sang about this just then. Mine is armor for this battle, strong enough to last the war. And he has said he will deliver. Right? God's going to do this. He will deliver me safely to the golden shore. And mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the king I walk, for there my heart has found his treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Right? God has started that work. If you're a Christian, he's going to keep you and he will deliver you. But all along, we are dependent on God. You know, in order to have uh, pure hearts you know, and everything that we've heard, I, I think it shows up in two things and that we would pray and that we would praise. You know, what I've said should, you know, really drive us to pray because the problem is far worse and deeper than we'd imagined. If, if victory over sin really is something that I can't accomplish by myself and I need God's help to do it, then the natural result is we will pray. Um, we need to pray or else we're going to keep uh, falling into temptation. Um, our flaws are going to keep rearing themselves and where it matters in our hearts, we're not going to change. You know, when you think about it that way, a, a prayerless church is a prideful church. Because if we can think that we will obtain holiness or clean hands or even pure hearts, if we think we can obtain holiness by our own strength, then that's pride. Right? If we don't pray, that's pride. Uh, we need to be humble enough desperate enough to come to God in prayer right, because we need him. And the second thing I think that this creates in us is praise. Because again, God has orchestrated all of this in such a way that our victory over sin is completely dependent on him. And when we are saved, 
and we make a choice to believe in Jesus, well, the reality is he made the choice and he worked in your heart before you chose Jesus. And so we praise you. And every day, uh, even though we try to resist sin, when we acknowledge that ultimately God is doing the more important work in my heart so that you know, I would want to resist sin and that he'll strengthen me to resist sin, well, then he gets the praise. And when we go to heaven and we are finally glorified, we will praise him forever. Because all the way through, he has done it. All right, I want to read a quote from New Morning Mercies. Uh, it's the devotional. Um, it says, um, Paul Tripp says, we are not spiritually independent in any way. The opposite is true. Just as in the first moment we believed, we are completely dependent on the grace of the Savior for every spiritual need. We cannot go it on our own. We have not produced fruit by our own righteousness and strength. There really is no good that we have, uh, that we have not received from God's gracious hand. So there is no reason to boast. There is nothing for which we can take credit. All praise, honor, worship, and service go to God and God alone. He sought us. He birthed us. He sustains us. He matures us. He protects us. And he will finally deliver us. To him be the glory. Amen. Right, all the way through, it's God. Right, from the pure heart to the outworking of the clean hands, it's God. And so he gets the praise. Ephesians says it like this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. None of us can boast about any good thing in our lives that we've produced, right? All fruit is the Spirit's fruit, it is God at work, and so he gets the praise. And so let me close Psalm says, Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Right? What kind of a person is welcomed into the presence of God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands is what we do. And we know what we do by going to God's word, not convoluting it, not adding to it, not removing it. Right? That's what clean hands is. And a pure heart. A pure heart is earned not by us, but only through Jesus Christ alone who can do the transformation. And so through all of it, we depend on God and we give him praise.